finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we read things. Uh, books, mainly. Sometimes... Short stories. Short stories. Sometimes fortune cookie fortunes. Uh, we usually don't talk about those on the podcast, but I, I mean, I read them. Uh, road signs, uh, articles about global warming, all sorts of stuff. But well, the podcast is mostly about books and short stories. And sometimes comics, like this week, where we read a comic. Specifically, we read Sandman Volume 3, Dream Country. So, Dream Country was published in 1991 and encompasses 17 to 20 of the issues. And what's interesting about this compilation is these are four stories that are seemingly unrelated and not in any way connected to the overarching storyline of Morpheus and the Endless. Yeah, see, this is the third, we've been in three collections of the Sandman so far, and all three of them have been complete, structured completely differently. Now, obviously, at the time that these books were being, these comics were being written and published, the trade market wasn't really what it is now. So I don't think they were really writing the individual issues and story arcs with that in mind. But it is kind of cool to see, like, Volume 1, Preludes and Nocturnes, is mostly uh, single-issue stories that follow a sort of a broader overarching plot, being, you know, the Sandman is captured, he escapes, and he tries to find his stuff. And that's pretty much all of Preludes and Nocturnes. And then Volume 2, The Doll's House, is one longer, denser, more connected story that includes a prelude and an interlude. And then this is for completely, you know, seemingly unrelated single-issue stories that share a few thematic connections, at least between two of them. And then otherwise, they just happen to be stories that are set in this specific world and contain, uh, you know, Dream of the Endless as a major character. Well, how often did the individual issues come out? A couple times a month or once a month? Uh, I think once a month. They probably double-shipped occasionally. I'm sure they missed a month here or there. But I I think this was generally supposed to just be a monthly series. Because I was thinking it's kind of a really, like, bold and, like, ballsy move to, like, have 16 issues where you're pushing this character, the Sandman, and then for the next three or four months very rarely show the Sandman in your issues. So yeah. at the t- I think it must have been kind of like provocative because you were like, here's the Sandman, here's the Endless. And then here's four issues where the Sandman and the Endless are sort of minor characters compared to the plot lines of what was going on. Honestly, I even misspoke. They're less connected than I made it seem like because I don't think he shows up at all in the last issue. Death is in it. Right. I think the only connection that I was able to find was when they do the Midsummer Night Dream. Mm. He mentions that he commissioned two plays, and the second play becomes important later on in the in the storyline, The Tempest. Um, and that was the only connection I could see to... Well, I guess there's... Sort of, okay, let's get into it. Let's get into Calliope, and then we'll, we can talk about sure. it. Sure. So the first issue in this collection is called Calliope. Uh... Uh, like every issue in this, there is written by Neil Gaiman. The pencils are by Kelly Jones. The inks are by Malcolm Jones III, who's inked almost every issue that we've done so far. The colors are by Robbie Bush. The letters are by Todd Klein. 
and then is edited by Tom Pyre and Karen Berger. I think the main thing that people should, I don't know if it's a spoiler or what, but it's mentioned that Calliope, who's one of the muses, has a child with Dream. Yeah, so that's the thing. I don't think, these don't move the plot forward. None, I don't think any of these issues really move the main plot forward. But they set up a lot of elements that are important to the plot or are just going to be important in later issues. So this we see... Well, I'll, I'll give a little short summary of this yeah, issue. Yeah, definitely. So it's mainly about a writer, a novelist. I think he's supposed to be a horror novelist. They mention he's a genre writer. I don't know right. if they ever specifically identify him as a horror writer. I think it is because at one point they compare... When they're doing this sort of montage of his reviews, they compare him to Clive Barker. Yeah. So this horror writer named Richard Madoc, which that's got to be a specific reference or something. It's such a weird name. I imagine that that has... There's some kind of connection I'm not making with his name. Well, you said you thought it was based on Clive Barker, and I thought it was based on Ramsey Campbell, the other big British horror writer at the time. I thought I said Clive Barker because the cabaret of Dr. Caligari sounds like it would be a Clive Barker story. Definitely. Um, but he's a novelist who wrote one successful novel and is suffering major writer's block. And so he gets this thing called the Bezoar, which is, in the case of the one he's getting, is a clump of undigested hair from a person's stomach that has sort of like pseudo-mystical properties. Well, I know this. From my day job as a librarian in a special collections library with a focus on alchemy, that bezoars are very important to alchemists and to sort of this sort of earth magic. Yeah, it's so, like a folk magic thing. Yeah. Definitely. That's what I meant to say. Pseudo-mystical is, is not the right word. More like it is it is a thing that is used in folk magic. Uh, I think they're usually like stones from the guts of animals. Like say right. that in the story. Goats, mostly. Goats, Goats like to eat rocks. That makes total sense. But this is a ball of hair from... Someone some, with pica. Yeah. And and so he uses that object to trade with this older, successful writer who's at the end of his career to trade for this muse that he has captured, which he has been holding captive since the 1920s. Now, Nate, you're going to give your trigger warning about the content. Yeah. This is probably the only thing... Before I've been like, oh, you know, there are all sorts of trigger warnings all over these other issues. This one I think is, this collection of issues is otherwise pretty tame. This is really the only thing. There's um, some serious abuse towards a woman. She's kept captive and sexually assaulted. It's not shown in any sort of graphic detail, but it is a big part of this issue. Otherwise, I don't think there's really anything else in this collection that's too... I mean, there's a lot of talk of of suicide and actual, like post-traumatic stress in the last issue but they don't really i can't really think of anything else that needs i mean midsummer's night dream and dream of a thousand cats are pretty tame i think this is another story that shows morpheus being an avenger for for someone who needs his help yeah this feels very much like a preludes and nocturnes story it really does and it definitely feels it's almost like a nod to classic horror because you know Someone makes a pact, you know, and, and, and they get these riches and there's going to be a comeuppance. And that's pretty much where Dream shows up. Yeah, so Richard Madoc gets Calliope the Muse. It's the title refers to, you know, not to the instrument, but to the actual, like, Greek Muse. 
and he he keeps her captive and rapes her and uh, gets inspiration and becomes a very successful celebrity writer over the course of several years. Uh, Calliope contacts the you know the kindly ones slash the Hecate slash the triple goddess and entreats for help. They basically tell her we can't because of the rules. She was bound by the rules, and so they can't intercede. And then she mentions that she has a relationship with Oneros, the the god of the Roman god of sleep, or the easy the Greek god of sleep. I forget which I forget if Morpheus or Oneros is the the Greek or Roman term. But she mentions she has this relationship with uh, with this this sleep god who we we know is going to be our boy Dream, and they're like, oh, he can't help you because he's also been captured. And then, because we've read the other issues, we know that he does get out. He shows back up and has a conversation with her. She asks him to help set her free. He gives Madoc an ironic punishment, which is like this constant ecstatic stream of delirious inspiration, which eventually compels Madoc to release Calliope from her imprisonment. And that's pretty much the whole story for this issue. Yeah, I think it's kind. Of, it's kind of like he gets the punishment that he deserves, which is where he he claims he can't let her go because he needs her to come up with these ideas. So Morpheus and his like very harsh black and white vengeance is okay. You you want her because you need ideas. Well, here's your punishment. You have so many ideas that you go insane. Yeah, this gets back to the thing we were talking about in Dream Country with the differences between his punishment for someone like the Corinthian. And his punishment for someone like Funland, Madoc gets a very cruel and specific punishment because Madoc made a choice. He he didn't need to do this to Calliope. He acknowledges at some point earlier in the issue that what he's doing could be awful. And he chooses to willfully deny her sapience so that he can continue abusing her and getting the thing he wants. So Morpheus doesn't show him any mercy when he encounters him. And in fact, doesn't show him mercy until Calliope asks him to. At the end of the issue. Otherwise, he would have just left him to be tortured endlessly in the same way that he left, uh, what's-his-face, Roderick, from the first issue. Which, this makes me think that this sort of is either related to his escape and vengeance, or it happens right at the time. Because he's still, he's he's also visually very, like, intense. He's super punk rock. He's super, like, dramatic. So he's kind of, like, the way that he's depicted he's very angry he's very vengeful and he's still sort of riding that high of getting that vengeance on the people that held him captive so i think when calliope calls on him and he sees that it's almost a similar situation he almost overreacts i think the vibe i was getting is i think this issue takes place after the sound of her wings but before dream country i think so and i also think i mean it's kind of getting to the point where you're starting to see very clearly let the kindly ones like to mess around with the endless. Yeah, so this was like what I was saying uh, that um, these issues don't move the plot forward, but they set up things to the plot. This is the first instance we get of something that's going to be very important later, which is like a, a woman in need contacting the kindly ones to act on her behalf. She's denied it, but this is like a theme that we see later that um, that plays heavily into... The way this series ends and dreams ultimate fate. Yeah, and I think even looking back to the epi- to the issue where Rose first encounters the kindly ones, she doesn't specifically call them, 
but they show up at the time where she needs to know what is going on and the kindly ones help her. They sort of give her the information that she's missing to figure out what's going on with the whole thing with Unity and all those other things. Yeah, I think this is the thing we see throughout the series is the kindly ones continually show up to provide information, they and but not to act. They show up in um, the first volume to tell Dream where his stuff is, but they don't do anything actively to help him. Yeah, I, I like the way Kelly Jones draws Dream a lot. Um, he definitely has like a Sid Vicious slash Glenn Danzig look going on in this Calliope. Yeah, just to for listeners, uh, Andrew just flipped to a page with a pretty sweet drawing of Dream. But so we see the Hecate in like show up to provide a source of information, but not to take an active role several times throughout the series. And then when they finally do take an active role, it's an incredibly big deal because we've seen them as these kind of passive or like oracles essentially. And then when it's finally time for them to do some shit it irrevocably changes the texture of the like story and the world it's set in. I think you're right because I think we start to we learn a couple of things. We learn that Morpheus has a son whose name is Orpheus. Yes, which is not the most creative thing, but that's okay. Take it up with the Greeks. Yeah, exactly. We we learn that the kindly ones interact with the endless and will intercede on the behalf of humans, which is important. We learn that that Morpheus has a backstory. He has relationships that are not mentioned in the first couple of issues. So we start to learn that he has a more complex and varied um, history with the Greeks and with different types of mythology, which is very important. And we learn that he's still out there seeking revenge and is willing to, if he can, and if he decides he wants to, he will also meddle in the affairs of humans, even though he claimed in the last issue that, you know, the Endless should not be involved with humans. True. I mean, in the last issue, he claims that they should be. They just shouldn't be lording over them the right. way that desired, desired to. Yeah, this is the first instance we get of something that's, like, hinted at in previous issues, which is that, like, the, the Endless have been around forever and will be around forever. And there are figures in that we know of from mythology who are actually the endless dream exists within the pantheon of greek and roman gods but he also exists separately from them so you know morpheus and oneros and whatever are him but he's not just that he's also something bigger and older than all the other gods like later on in the series we actually learn that gods all originate in the dreaming and return to the dreaming when it's their time to die. And that's also a thing we see later on in this volume is the idea that gods can die. Yeah. Which then, like, it becomes very important in, like, you know, thematically, at least, in American gods. I think it's also this issue plays upon this sort of... Um, this hook that Neil Gaiman has about talking about the art of writing yeah. or the culture of being a writer. Because you can see that in a lot of his works. There's always, like... It's almost like Stephen King. There's always a character who's a writer who's a stand-in for himself. And I think, like, he he's talking about the sort of difficulty with the process of writing. And this is common. I, you see this a lot with writers where they have this fixation with the muses. And there's a lot of sort of science fiction and fantasy about 
you know, what goes awry when people trap a muse or try to trap a muse. This is a very common theme in some of the the literature about being upset. Like that there's a fount of like creativity and if you can't get it to flow, that there's some external force that you can use outside of yourself to get it moving. Yeah, okay. So I don't... This issue I have complicated feelings about. I like Kelly Jones's art a lot. His stuff, I think, is almost kind of a middle ground between the Sam Keith stuff from uh, the beginning of Preludes and Nocturnes and the Mike Dringenberg stuff we saw in the previous volume. Like, it's more cartoony than Dringenberg, but it's not quite as loose and experimental as the Sam Keith stuff. I think his use of shadow is great. Like, he does a great... You know, artists always on this series do the thing with, like, Dream kind of emerging from the shadows and having the shadows move across his face. And I think he does a great job of that. Like, his hair almost blends into the shadows in, like, a cool way when he draws them. Um, I like the sequence where Madoc is having this, like, delirious storm of inspiration. I like some of the little bits of world building and mythology crafting that we get in this. But the actual meat of this issue is gross and baffling to me. I don't understand what Gaiman is trying to say about writing, about writers, about himself in this. Because what happens is he takes the act of writing and of inspiration and he, there's no way to dance around it. He turns it into a rape metaphor. You know, this is one of two stories we get in this volume that's about the idea of like inspiration as this external force that's bigger and older than the writer themselves. And it makes much more sense to me in Midsummer's Night's Dream. Here, it's like this idea that like as a writer drawing inspiration, you're doing like an, a predatory, abusive act to something that doesn't exist. But also it does because while Calliope is a mythological figure in the real world, it is a, she is a real person in this. And like she says that to Madoc, like, hey, I'm real. I'm not just a receptacle for your seed. I, th- I think the only way that I can really read this where it makes sense to me is that it's like, it's less of a metaphor than it seems like. That it's going after the idea of like, people who have a real muse. Like a real person that they use as an like, source for their art. Like, um, I can't, there's plenty of examples in real life. I can't think of any off the top of my head. But like... That that relationship, while it's, like, romanticized by a lot of art, is often much more predatory and exploitative and abusive than it really is. Or than it really seems. I understand exactly what you're saying. And as a writer, I can see your point of view. I actually thought it was less about writing and more about the publishing. And maybe more about the expectations of success. Because Erasmus, to him, he he wanted the muse because he wanted to write. And that's why he was so obsessed with, like, can they republish my first book? Can you ask him about my first book? Because he was concerned about the product that he had produced. He wanted it to be out there. Well, Richard Maddock is kind of more obsessed with the sort of trappings of the success that his writing brings. He wants to be on TV shows. He wants to direct movies. He wants to sort of be that sort of celebrity author. And I think that's the distinction between the two of them. Erasmus was upset because he didn't have the muse and he couldn't write. 
but Maddox was obsessed because he didn't have he his writer's block stopped him from producing commercially successful material. Yeah, I definitely think there's a there's some stuff in here about like you know trying to create art under capitalism where you're expected to constantly be making more and making stuff that's more profitable than the stuff you made before and the pressures of that is definitely but the problem with that as a reading of this is that it ends up weirdly excusing some of the really awful because it's like stuff that madoc does because it's saying like ah he was pushed into this which is like clearly and then on the other hand i think the the book disagrees with that because if that was the case he wouldn't have gotten as harsh a punishment from morpheus and i think he's just i mean i'm not saying he's he's not a shit he is Mm. but i think like even like like i don't even know how to say this without like barfing a little in my own mouth say it is that like even his like raping of the muse is almost like some kind of like statement about how he's like going to his own create you know his creativity and he's like selling it or abusing it to be a commercial yeah but then that robs calliope of her humanity which this comic clearly doesn't want you to do because she asserts her own humanity in it i think the thing is like i don't necessarily think our readings are mutually exclusive my problem with this comic is that, well, one, it, it goes back to the well of, it, this is some of the worst tendencies of Gaiman as a writer in this period on display. The use of sexual abuse and exploitation as a plot device. This idea of like, where Morpheus is like, I was wronged by these women and I have to learn to forgive them. is like a, <laughs> shut up. You know what but, I think, I mean, I really, the most that you see that plot device is in the Sandman. Yeah, yeah. That's what I said at this. Novels. He has a lot of very strong female characters, and his in his personal life, he's surrounded by very strong, independent, creative women. That's the type of women that he spends his time with. So I don't think he sees women as the way that they're depicted in the same man. So I don't understand. Like that's the problem that I have is to like rectify it with this later work. Well, that's why I said at this time. Also, I think the other thing you have to understand is how old was he when he was writing this? He was 30. He was like, like th- this is a very like late 20s, early 30s man dude thing to write about. Like, I I, am, I, I agree that he, he matured after this. I'm just saying like that stuff is like the worst parts but of I'm- the Sandman is this like angry young man who went through a bad breakup. I'm this Byronic hero and I have to learn to forgive the women that wronged me. But the other thing I was going to say is, like, I don't under... If if we assume that Calliope is supposed to represent a real human person that is being exploited and abused, then it makes sense to me. If it's not, and we're, and we're supposed to assume that Calliope is part of the metaphor and is a metaphorical figure, then I have no clue what he's trying to say about writing. Like, I think if we, this one, it makes sense if this is read as a commentary on a certain kind of author and artist and, like, a critique of the male genius, then it makes sense to me. If it's supposed to just be about the act of writing itself and not the people that are writing, then I have no fucking clue what he's trying to say. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, on the surface, it seems like it's just a horror story, but as you unpack it, it it's much more than that. But it's just, I think, like... I think this issue definitely suffers by proximity to Midsummer's Night's Dream, which I don't necessarily think explores a lot of the same themes now that we're digging into what Calliope is actually about, but has a lot of that. Like I said, it's another story about writing, about a writer, about the the 
idea of inspiration that's just so much clearer and better than this is. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, I don't know how... Do you have anything else to say about Calliope? The only thing I was going to say, and I, and I don't read a lot of comics, so I, I can't... But I have seen a lot of the visual depiction of women in comics. Is this a common theme in just comic books itself? This sort of predatory nature where women are put in these roles? There's a lot of... We talked about it a little bit when we talked about Dream Country. I, I think because... I mean, I think it's true across genre fiction, and comics are almost often working in genres... There is a lot of, you know, exploitative stuff about women. There's a lot of, you know, some comics that are trying and failing to be more mature go to the well of, like, the threat of sexual violence or, like, making characters scary by having them be rapists. Like, that happens a lot. It's 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 a bad thing about comics and it's a thing we should be working about being better about. I, I That's one of the reasons why I'm excited about the movement to make, you know comics more diverse is I think having more voices means we're going to probably get less of this stuff. I also think that this is something that looks worse because of how much time has passed. Well, that's what I was going to say. If this was written today, would it have that plot point at all? No, probably not. That's the same thing. I don't think that if he was writing Dream Country today, we would have, you know, all of those sequences where people are threatening to rape Rose. I, I mean, like, this is something where like, just like the years of people who are either influenced by this or influenced by similar things sloppily recreating it has made this stuff worse in comparison. That's a real problem that Watchmen has. Like, it's supposed to be this towering classic masterpiece of comics art, which I think it is. But so many sloppy imitators have left a lot of the things that happen in Watchmen in a state where they just leave a bad taste in your mouth now. It's a little... I used to reread that comic every year. And now I have a hard time going back to it because of some the stuff that's come after it. Interesting. Well, let's move on to the second issue, which is a pretty great issue. I mean, all of the, I think all of the issues are fantastic in this series. It's kind of like two problematic, emotional... Bookends, and then in the middle you have these sort of fun, fluffy parts. I think, yeah, it's like I said, I don't. It's like a, it's like a sandwich. That's why I said I have complicated feelings about Calliope. I don't hate that issue, and I think there's good stuff in it, and it is like technically like a well-crafted comic book story. It's just I have complicated feelings about it. Yeah, this has the same exact creative team as the previous issue. Um, this is a dream of a thousand cats. Do you want me to? Should I give us another summary of this one? Sure. This is episode, This is issue number eighteen. Yeah. Uh, so this is about a meeting of cats in the woods, convened by a cat, who tells a story about how she lived with a family of humans. She got pregnant by a rakish tomcat. She bore his children, which were then brutally killed by the humans. Uh, she was distressed and ends up going on like a mythical journey into the underworld where she ends up in the dreaming in her sleep and meets the dream cat, our boy Morpheus, and asks him, hey, why is everything so shitty and humans are so mean and bad? I'm being reductive. And he tells her a story that may or may not... This is another theme throughout this issue is um, things don't need to actually have happened to be true. He tells her this story that cats used to be giant and ruled the world and humans were tiny and subjugated by them. And then all of the humans all at once dreamed a world where humans were in charge and the dream became reality. 
And the cat is essentially leading a campaign to convince all of the cats, or at least a thousand of them, to dream of a world where the cats are in charge again. And obviously, it's hard to get cats to do anything all at once. Let alone a thousand of them. Um, I like this issue a lot because I like cats. but <laughs> And we know that Neil Gaiman likes cats. He's written many things about cats. I think this is a variant of sort of Tales from the Sand where it's kind of proven that Morpheus looks the way that culturally you expect him to look. So he, when he, when the cat visits him, he appears as a cat, but then he's also very Sam Mannish kind of cat. He looks like sort of a French Nouveau 1930s style cat. And he is super chill, surprisingly super chill, because usually when you have an audience with Morpheus, he's super intense and wants vengeance and is going to... I mean, I was expecting him to do something to help the cat get her vengeance, but he kind of gave her a task that was a little bit impossible for her to do. Yeah, but this this is the thing. This is like going back to um, Volume 1, to the lessons he learns in Volume 1, he he gives her hope. That's the important right. thing. Like, this isn't the vengeful alien god that we see in Tales in the Sand. This is the, you know, this is the Morpheus who won the imagination contest in Hell and had the conversation with Death by the fountain in the sound of her wings. Like, he he does a little bit of the flexing of like, oh, I'm so powerful in front of the cat but at the end of the day what he does is give her a goal that she can do and whether or not she can achieve her dream she has a dream now and she's not just hopeless and confused the way that she was after her kittens were so cruelly killed i also like that it sort of implies that if the cats would get their shit together that they could totally rule the world yeah and i think that's funny because at one point he does have the the sort of British proverb where it says a cat can look at the king, you know, so mm-hmm. so a cat can possibly do something, which I think is very fun. I did have a question for you, though. At the one part where she's crossing over into the dream world and she meets the raven with the skull head, mm-hmm. is that supposed to be Matthew? Um, I don't know. He doesn't really talk like Matthew. I think it's supposed to be one of Eve's ravens, which we see later on in the series. Okay. I mean, like, time-wise, because of the visuals of this and because of the lifespan of cats, this has to be after he's released from the glass jar. Because this doesn't look like it takes place before... No, it looks like it takes... Because when they show the the humans, they're obviously in a modern setting. Yeah. So they have, like, contemporary clothes, clothing and things like that. Why they disposed of her kittens in that such a harsh way, I guess it's... For the story, but it doesn't seem like... I mean, like, in modern times, you would just take them to the shelter. Yeah, well, I mean, I think they're just bad people. Okay, that makes sense. The, um... Can we talk, though? The art in this is amazing. I know. It's so beautiful. Kelly Jones... Kelly Jones is good at drawing Batman. I think he might just be great at drawing cats, though. (laughs) Clearly, there's a lot of photo reference in this, but they're, they're beautiful. Like, the way he uses shadows on their, like, fur... But it's almost like... Calliope, too, in the depiction of Morpheus and Calliope, like you said, he's sort of drawn in the shadows. He has these dark rings under his eyes. It's very sort of 
um, animalistic looking. And then when he does these drawings of the cats, I mean, when he like when he depicts like Morpheus as the cat and he's sort of lounging, and then you know the the blue eyes of the female cat is very dramatic. Yeah, when he draws Morpheus as the dream cat in this, he's literally just a shadow in the shape of a cat with, like, you know, blue highlights and these glowing white eyes. But, like, the expressive... Yeah, it's just incredible. The expressiveness on, like, the... Because these are very realistic drawings of cats. Like I said, he's clearly using a ton of photo reference. But the amount of expression he's able to draw from them is, like, so impressive. Like, there's... Just one panel that's like a close-up of the cat telling the story's face with just like these big blue eyes. And yeah. it's it's really beautiful. I I think like well, saying to someone, oh, yeah, this is the Sandman issue that's about cats. It feels like gimmicky. But this is like a really beautiful and well-crafted little piece of comic book storytelling. I love the um, when he tells the story about how in the past cats were really big and humans were really small yeah. and then the cats are like are laying down and the humans are like grooming them like yeah. my, and i think that's kind of like a funny weird like image yeah he also doesn't draw the cats any different in that sequence so they're just giant house cats yeah. with little humans with loincloths running around on them yeah no I, I i think it's a great issue i think visually it's it's beautiful and I think it's kind of fun and it's more, it's like lighthearted, which I kind of think like a lot of the plot that happens in Sandman is kind of really heavy heavy and emotionally like draining. This is sort of like a little fluffy interlude, like literally a fluffy interlude. Yes. Yes. It's literally fluffy. Yeah. Like, and there's like a, it has a great little funny ending where there's this kitten that comes along to hear the, the cat's, um, you know, speech about dreams. And then at the end, the, he's like all cute in a basket. And they're like, I wonder what he's dreaming about. And he's like, he's dreaming about eating you, dog. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's the one who gets, he gets, he gets it. And he's, he's in on the, the dream plan. But I think it's kind of, it's also, there's that sort of horror movie twist at the end where you're kind of like, oh, it's okay. You know, she has to get a thousand cats. and But there's always that lingering chance that, she might get a thousand cats to dream the same dream and then one day we could end up and we'd be small again and the cats would be big. Yeah, but then you wouldn't ever know. It would just be how it is. It's very Borges, this like idea that like dreams, which are a kind of story and fictions, can overwrite the reality through consensus. You know, and this is I think while ultimately not incredibly you know, not really connected to the overarching Sandman plot line. I think this does, you know, it explores this idea that dreams and stories are powerful and they can literally change the world. Even if they can't actually do that, the idea that you might think they can is important enough as is because things can be true without having ever actually happened, which then becomes, in the next issue, is a major theme of that. But it also shows Morpheus as a more, a kinder, like a more gentle, even more like, um, kind of open kind of endless instead of being so judgmental and also i think letting giving the cat the opportunity to try to get a thousand cats to dream this dream to change the you know the flow of history or whatever kind of is 
like it's more generous than Morpheus because usually he just says like, okay, I'm going to take care of this. Like with Rose, he's like, I've had enough. Yeah, but he's not going to just be like, okay, I'm going to punish all humans for being mean to cats. But yeah, I get what you're saying. But he instead of just saying, no, it's human time now. It's not cat time. (laughs) He says, if you can do this, then you can make it cat time. And then, you know... Then they're going to grieve you, and you're going to chase them and devour them instead of the other way around. Yeah. I, I think this is almost like Men of Good Fortune, where it's, like, important to... If you're going to do all this work of giving Morpheus all this character development, then it's important to show it in action. So this is a nice little reminder of, like, how much this character has changed since we saw him in the first issue. And, like... And if he can have a friend, like Hob, he can certainly have a cat like this cat yeah i'm surprised the cat doesn't have a name well yeah i guess i mean it's just a cat it's the cat but yeah no i I like this i mean i think it's i think it's a nice interlude and i think i like how at the the last panel is the little cat dreaming and then you flip the page and the next story is a midsummer's night dream so it kind of like flows from like one dream into a different type of dream. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to move on to Midnight Summer Night's Dream? Yeah, I think that one's got a lot in it. That's a that's a very good issue. So Midnight Summer Night's Dream, it's issue nineteen. It is I, the credits, I believe, are Neil Gaiman with material from William Shakespeare, uh, and then it is penciled and inked by Charles Vess, uh, colored by Steve Olith. Lettered by Todd Klein and then edited by Tom Pyre and Karen Berger. So, in the beginning of this issue, we find out that Dream commissions two plays from Shakespeare, which is mentioned in Men of Good Fortune. So, this is the first one that he commissions, and it turns out that the second one that he commissions is The Tempest. Yeah, which we'll see later. Which you can kind of put it together from reading this and knowing about Shakespeare's career that it's going to end up being The Tempest. But yeah, this is one half of the payoff tour of the Shakespeare stuff in Men of Good Fortune. Right. So, Dream commissions the play from Shakespeare, and the play is taking place in a field in a place called Wilmington. Yeah, Wendell's Mound. Right. My question to you is, is Wilmington Fiddler's Green? No, I mean, I think there's probably supposed to be like some kind of overlap with with Fiddler's Green, but I think it's clearly, like, a, it's a very clearly and explicitly a place on Earth. Because that's a big part of this issue, is the passage of the fairy court out of Earth and into their own realm permanently. Okay. Okay. So, Dream commissions the play, and then he invites the Fae to the play as a way to make amends for something... I'm not quite sure why he is giving him them this gift of this play. I think my understanding is that he he's aware of the fact that they're going to be retreating from the world. I mean, this is what becomes clear as you read the story. I mean, not that th- this is something you have to puzzle out as you read the story. Right. But he's aware that they're going to pass out of the earth, and he doesn't want them to be forgotten. And because he understands the importance of stories, he commissions Shakespeare to write a story that will last and will portray them as characters and capture their essence so that it will some part of them will always exist on earth even after they're gone so he 
He's essentially he pres- tells William Shakespeare about like Puck and Tatiana and all the characters that are in Midsummer's Night's Dream, and mm-hmm. then he writes this sort of farcical play about them. Yeah. Okay. This is a really um, so the bulk of the story is really just the tale of the night that Shakespeare and his actors put on a production of A Midsummer's Night's Dream for. The characters in A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Right. But the actors don't know that... First, they don't know that they're fairies, and then they realize that they are sort of magical creatures. But then they don't realize that the characters that they're portraying are actually in the audience. Yeah. And that's what happens with Puck, who is depicted as a hobgoblin. Mm-hmm. He gets so excited about the fact that he's depicted in the play that he wants to be in the actual play. Yeah, he's the first character that starts to... to clue into that whole idea about truth where he realizes that he is in the play and this is about him and the people around him and while these specific events never happened they capture them so thoroughly that it doesn't really matter they're essentially true without being literally true and then he passes through the fourth wall and takes over his own role in the play this is a very um it's very meta yeah so we what we get here is a comic about a play about a play and we have a writer writing about a writer writing a it's a writer writing about a writer who is also an actor writing about actors and writing a play about fairies for fairies right yeah it's very complicated but, but this... it really has beautiful visuals. I mean, I like the way that the fairies are depicted, and I like the way that he, the way that it's drawn, where you can tell, like, where the audience is watching the play, and then at the same time that they're watching the play, there's this sort of plot going on that's sort of outside of the play, which is very sort of complicated and gives a sort of extra layer of like complication which is interesting because i think like with shakespeare's plays there's all especially this one in particular the whole part of it it's almost like a fraser episode like the whole confusion is what makes the plot which makes the story move along yeah yeah when i'm saying like this you know is another story about inspiration coming externally like shakespeare gains his inspiration from the intercession of dream into his life but this is, I think the metaphor is more clear here. It's more about, like, obsession and, like, it, it's easier to read Dream, who is portrayed in the story as an external figure, but is probably literally an internal figure. Like, your dreams come from within you, and then you're inspired by your dreams, and you chase this obsession and turn something unreal into something real, and it can sort of overshadow your real life. And we see that with Will's relationship with Hamnet, where his, like, obsession and fixation on writing in the act of creation which i think for shakespeare is less of this like materialist capitalist pursuit like it is for richard madoc and more of this like genuine obsession that ends up you know causing him to sort of neglect his son who then he loses and then memorializes by creating a plague just as his son had predicted earlier in the story right and the play that he creates is about a complicated relationship 
Between his son and his father. Yeah, so Hamlet. His son is Hamlet. He writes Hamlet about <laughs> right. him. Um, I thought it was really interesting that, I mean, I thought like one of my favorite parts is the depiction of Puck and how he reacts to the play and how excited he gets about being able to um, once again meddle in the sort of affairs of humans. And in fact, he ends up staying in the human world. Yeah, to be the last hobgoblin. And I kind of, like, I really wish that there had been, like, an issue just about him or his adventures or what happened. He shows up later, doesn't he? But I, I feel like he, he could be, like, his own series at this point. I mean, he's so, he's so mischievous. He's almost like a Loki character. I mean, he could really have a lot of adventures. Yeah. Well, he shows up later in the story working with Loki, literally. Spoiler alert. For people, but that does happen in this, right? Well, that's I I don't remember that. We'll we'll get to it later. It's important in the end game of the series. Okay, but yeah, he's 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 very good. I like the speech he gives about being the last hobgoblin. I like how um they have him. One of the last pages of the story is just him reciting that classic. If these shadows have offended, think but this, and it is mended. Speech from the end of Midsummer's Night's Dream. But yeah, it's it's a really well structured page. Like it uses the shadow really well. We're hit with him fading into the shadows. But I think that's one of the coolest parts of the metafiction is how that classic speech is completely recontextualized when it is the literal puck. It is literally Robin Goodfellow giving that speech. Well, that's what I mean. That's kind of like that's when he officially like he break, he's out of the like play and he is his own person because he's saying he's reciting the parts from the play but they're not from the play but then later on they become part of the play so it's kind of very complicated he almost becomes a metaphor for this comic itself in the way that he he crosses the fourth wall into the story and then becomes the version of himself that exists in the story and then takes that back out of the fourth wall and back into the real world where he's, you know, you get what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I mean, he almost, he is himself in, in the Fey world, but then when he sees how humans depict him, he absorbs part of that persona and makes that his own visualization to the yeah. world. Because he doesn't, he puts on the mask that they give him. He's wearing a mask of his own face. Yes. But it's not actually his face. It's what humans imagine his face would look like. And so he's playing... And then when he's, I believe by the time he's giving the speech, he's not wearing the mask anymore. Right, he's not, so, and then his face has sort of subtly changed, like that he now he has yeah. the sort of, some of the features that were in the mask have suddenly changed his face, that he now he looks a little bit more mm-hmm. like himself plus the mask. Yeah, and I think it's like touching on this idea that like, um, you know, we talked about, when we talked about Borges, uh, if you quote Shakespeare, you are Shakespeare. I think there's this thing where like, art and acting and the act of creation, it requires you to become something you're not in order to create something that's not just a portrait of yourself. And even if you were creating a portrait of yourself, you can't ever 100% replicate anything. So you still have to change and morph and integrate parts that aren't you in order to create something new. Like the act of acting in this play changes Puck and the act of Puck being in the play changes the play and changes the context. Like I said, like it has a completely different meaning now that it's the actual guy. And all it is is just that a different person is playing the role than originally. Yeah. 
And I think, I mean, to circle back to the end of the dream sequence, when they wake up, when, when the play is over and Puck has done his speech, the next set of panels happen during the day and all of the actors are asleep and they wake up. And then they say to themselves, was this a dream? And then Shakespeare says, no, we really put on this play. We did it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they open up the bag that they thought was filled with gold and it's filled with like yellow flowers. But then they're kind of like, oh, it was a dream and it was like a great time. Let's, and they just sort of wake up and then they move on. Yeah. There's so many little good like details and moments. It's a very dense story. I mean, visually it's dense. Charles S. has like a very lush detailed art style but then occasionally he's able to slip into these more abstract things like the stuff with the shadows and robin goodfellow but there's like there's the the actor who's greedy and tries to get gold from king oberon and ends up with a bag of flowers which honestly is like if you're getting gold from the fairies the best you can hope for is it turns out to be a bag of of flowers well i think that's kind of why he was like uh you know, he's like, oh, we got cheated. But then he was kind of like, he says, no, we were paid full well, which other troops have played to such an audience. So even though Shakespeare knows that they got, the the actor thinks he's gotten cheated because he didn't get the gold. But then Shakespeare's like, no, we got paid what we were going to get paid because a bunch of fairies paid us. Yeah, and this is another reason, like, this is another reason why the story is like a counterpoint to Calliope, where, and Shakespeare is... <laughs> Shakespeare as a character is a counterpoint to Richard Madoc because for Shakespeare it's like it's about the act of creation like it doesn't matter that they didn't get paid or what didn't get paid an actual gold or whatever they just they put on the play for an audience that cared about it and who it was important to but also like saying with the the little moments there's these continual cuts to this group of fairies watching and commenting on the play in the audience and they're all really good there's like the one with the goat head who's like well what's so funny about having a donkey head (laughs) yeah and then, like, Peasbottom gets mad because he is, like, this obsequious servant in the play. And he fancies himself, like, a vicious monster in real life. And there's this, like, giant who really wants to watch the play. And he's getting annoyed by these dumb jerks in the audience who keep talking over it. Yeah, no, no, it's a really, it's a really good. And it kind of, it's like, it's the payoff from Men of Good Fortune. Because he does have that interaction with Shakespeare. Yeah. Oh, that's another thing. We see that... Uh, this is another sort of highlight of like the difference between dream in before his imprisonment and dream after the sound of her wings. He in Men of Good Fortune, we see Shakespeare hanging out with Marlowe, and in this dream, just kind of callously tells Shakespeare in literally the middle of the play during the interlude, the um, what the what is that called? Intermission. Intermission that Marlowe is dead, and he doesn't understand why that is upsetting to Shakespeare. He's like, uh, he was like, my friend, dude. And like, this, this is dream before, you know, he has this falling out with Hobb in Men of Good Fortune and shows back up in the 80s. And he does, he like just doesn't even understand the idea of a friend yet. But I also think it shows that, that Morpheus is doing something positive for humans. Even though humans might not realize it because he is sort of a moral, you know, he wants this play to be written so that the Fae are not forgotten. And I think that sort of plays a lot into these themes that Neil Gaiman has about like American gods where it's like, 
if you forget about something, it's gone and, and it cannot be retrieved. Is this him doing something nice for humans or is this him not having learned his lesson yet and using humans as a tool to achieve something that he desires? He wants the fairies to be preserved and so he manipulates Shakespeare, even though this is he's giving Shakespeare what he wants, he still manipulates him into serving his ends. I don't think this is the kind of thing that... I, I don't think this is portrayed as being a bad thing, but I think this is, is something that a pre-character development Morpheus would do rather than a later one. That makes sense. Because Shakespeare doesn't really understand what he's doing while he's doing this. He just knows that he has to put on this play for his benefactor. See, I, I didn't really... I, I might not have caught on to the fact that he was making this play to sort of remember the fag who were leaving. Yeah. I thought for some reason in my mind that he was making an apology to the fairy queen. I mean, I think that's... I, I mean, maybe that's part of it. Like, he had done something to her to make her want to leave the... the You know, interact with humans or whatever. Something I thought it was happened. just like a, you know, time passes and magic removes from the world kind of... That classic setup. Right. Um, this also sets up more thematic stuff with... There's another reference to... Another unnamed reference to Orpheus. Uh, they talk about how the first of... Not the first. The previous time that this story was told, it was in Greece by a guy, or they might, they might have even said Thrace, by a guy with a lyre. And then Morpheus looks pretty perturbed when this is brought up. And so we we learn, you know, we start to see the regrets that he has over what happened with his son. Right. Which then becomes very important later on in the series. We also get, I don't want to get too much into why this is foreshadowing. Or why this is not even necessarily why this is foreshadowing, but why this is important. But we see uh, Titania plotting to take Shakespeare's son, and the like kidnapping of a boy by an otherworldly figure becomes very important later on in Sandman. Well, I think this now that we look at all of these issues together, it really does have a lot to do. These three issues all have something to do with relationships of parents and children. Yes. What, do they? Well, yeah, I think like Calliope. Oh, well, yeah, because Calliope, Calliope and has her the... son, mm-hmm. and then the cat and her children and her kittens, and then William Shakespeare and his son, and Morpheus and his son, and even Puck being almost like a child, being like a, mm-hmm. you know like a a child figure in some way in the actual play. Yeah, I hadn't actually put it together until you. Well, no, I had put it together. And I wanted to bring it up when we were talking about Dream of a Thousand Cats, but I forgot. But I think there is definitely a sort of thematic mirror between the cat and the fate of her children and the relationship between Calliope and Morpheus with Orpheus and and what happens to him or happened to him. I also think, I mean, to sort of pre into Facade, that character and her relationship to Ra, who created her, there is some mention of like him creating this sort of um, race of humans, metamorphi or whatever he calls them. Yeah, they're almost like the same thing. She almost has this detached relationship with Ra, which is almost like this sort of broken down, detached relationship between a daughter and her father. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that might. And they just have be a moment post- of reconciliation. And yes. we'll, we'll get to that one. Yeah, but that next- might be just like sort of post-observation and sort of desperately looking for a theme. Because a lot of writing about these 
issues in this collection is there's no theme, there's no common theme. And a lot of people debating that, saying there is a common theme, it's this, this, or this. So. Um, I think I think you're on to something. I think the uh I think the the theme of the children is is pretty important. Is I think the next volume is when we get the Orpheus story for the first time. I could be wrong. But they're definitely setting that up intentionally throughout this volume. I don't know. I think that Facade is probably the only one that doesn't quite connect with that idea. But it's not totally removed from it. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the whole thing is that, you know, this sort of familial relationship can take on different manifestations. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, we're not going to talk about that now. We're still talking about Midsummer Night's Dream, so. Oh, the other thing I wanted to touch on, if you know any, if you haven't read Sandman and you know of any specific issue, it's probably this one because this won the World Fantasy Award. It's the right. only comic to win um, whatever the big, the big one, the big one for that is. Because later on after this, they would sort of exile comics to the like special professional category probably because some big beardy dorks raised a big stink about a comic winning their special award that only their <laughs> should be allowed to have i think this is this is almost like a high fantasy scene. oh absolutely I mean, it really has elements it takes a lot of elements from different genres and sort of smashes them together oh this could easily just be a pr- like he could have written this i don't think it would have been as good but he could have easily written this as a prose short story and people would have loved it like this I could easily see this fitting into even, you know, robbed of the explicit Sandman connections could have worked in like fragile things or whatever. Any, any number of his short story collections. I think even he, he could have taken one of the sort of Greek or Roman gods. He could have done something to replace Sandman with some kind of. Yeah, with um, literally just Morpheus and put it in American gods. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because it's the same thing. It's the same theme of if you don't remember the fae then they'll have faded away and they won't be remembered at all yeah it's like an interesting thing where (laughs) midsummer's night's dream is essentially like a uh metaphysical nature preserve for fairies yes and that's kind of like why i thought like a little bit maybe it had taken place in fiddler's green because um they cross over the fairies cross over into this world and then morpheus shows up and then the he shows up first he because there's this really cool sequence where there's like this figure on wendell's mound wendell this like um you know man depicted on the ground and morpheus calls for him to open his door and you see the like land animating and then pulling this door open into the world that becomes this portal into this lush fairy realm that they all come out of it's a really beautiful sequence the whole comic is very beautiful but but that's what I, I mean. So then I thought, okay, then they're in the real world. But then when all the actors wake up in the morning, they're all asleep. Oh, you know what? I didn't even put that together. So I kind of thought, like, what did he, did he bring the fairies and then bring himself and then bring the actors and then everybody went to Fiddler Green because then it's it takes place in this sort of lush landscape and then they all leave and the actors wake up and they're waking up from a place like. So in my mind, I was like, is this Fiddler's Green? That did not occur to me, but I think that's entirely possible. That sounds right. I don't know. Well, I want it to be right, because I wanted to imagine them having this play on 
GK chest, which is <laughs> giant green chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I could, I could definitely see that. See that. Yeah, I think maybe it's like, hmm. Because Fiddler's Green is supposed to be like this idyllic world that can be whatever you want. But maybe it's just my obsession with like the loci, like and hmm. it's coming out now. I want, I want to have like a loci in everything I read. Yeah, maybe. So. Uh, oh, so another thing about this issue is oh, that's ex- another thing about this issue that's external from it is there's kind of a weird sequel to it in a different comic, which is another uh, DC comic that Gaiman wrote around this time is called it's the Books of Magic, and each issue of the Books of Magic has a different artist and covers a different element of magic in the DC universe, and one of the issues is drawn by Charles Vess and takes place in Fairy and contains this story's version of Queen Titania as a major character. And again, she's trying to trying to steal a, a little boy in that, too. Well, I think that sort of ties into the actual... what supposedly actually happened to Shakespeare's son, who yeah, dies yeah. At, at a very young age, mysteriously. Yeah, there's some kind of ambiguity about, you know, what actually happened. This raises an ambiguity about what actually happened with his, with his son. Do you have anything else to add about? Hmm. Do I have anything else to add? Not that I can think of all the time I had. Do you have anything else to say about this one? Um. No. I, I really liked it. I thought it was very interesting. I thought the depiction of Puck I, visually was incredible. I thought that was a very dramatic choice. I liked the, I liked everything about it. Yeah, the art's really great. Charlie Vest is he's fantastic. Um. He he would go on to also to illustrate. Uh, Stardust. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I can see a lot of this sort of elongated sort of imagery in that. He works very well. He's he's like one of the artists that I associate with Neil Gaiman. Like, they're a good match. Their styles mesh very well. I think he also illustrated, when they did that, Um, I could be wrong about this. I might have to look it up. When they did that book, the picture book of that poem about fairy tale rules, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I think he illustrated that as well. I could see that. But yeah, he's got this like very lush, uh, almost, almost, not not quite as like uh, adorned, but not too far off from like a, almost an Art Nouveau kind of thing. Like these feel very much like classical, not classic, but like these feel like illustrations of fairies you would find in an old book. The way that he draws them and the, and the environments that they're in. Well, I think that's the fantasy part of it. They're very sort of high fantasy looking elves of like, you know, Lord of the Rings, kind of Middle Earth, kind of flowy. Yeah, they're very... Gowned, you know, pale skinned, very slim kind of depiction of fairies. All right, yeah. Let's move on to the last issue. So from something light and airy oh, to... Facade. So depressing. This is a really rough story. I mean, there's a lot going on here emotionally dealing with like identity and depression and like roles in society and, you know, like sort of feeling alone. I mean, it's just, it's hard. It's punishing. It's a very bleak. I mean, up until the very end, it is a very bleak story. Uh, Yes. So Facade is issue 20. It's penciled by Colleen Duran, inked by Malcolm Jones III, lettered by Todd Klein, colored by Steve Oliff, edited by Tom Byer, Tom Pyer and Karen Berger. Uh, so I think this this sort of 
This is the story of um, Element Girl. And I think this is one of Neil Gaiman's favorite tricks, which is to find one of the most obscure characters that he can find and to sort of bring them into the light. Uh, so yeah. what, what is the backstory okay. of Element Girl? So Element Girl is a sp- in the style of a Supergirl or She-Hulk or Spider-Woman. She is the um, spinoff of a male character. She is... So there's a character called Metamorpho who's created by Bob Haney and Ramona Fraden. Who, Ramona Fraden is a super underrated classic comics artist who drew these a lot of really like fun and beautiful comics in the like early 60s i think anyway uh metamorpho's whole deal is that he's like an adventurer soldier of fortune type character who is in love with sapphire stag the daughter of simon stag this like rich industrialist dude and he gets betrayed by simon stag and exposed to the orb of raw and becomes this um meta this like dude who can turn into all different elements and compounds and alter the molecular state of his body but he looks like a weird monster with like a chalk white face and a orange and purple chest and urania blackwell is like a spy who also ends up getting exposed to the orb of raw and i think in her first appearance she's kind of a villain and then she becomes like a supporting character not quite a sidekick Throughout the rest of the like 17 issues of Metamorpho's original run. And so in this comic, she's. He, he really tags on to the idea that she was a spy. And she's clearly like, she's on disability. She's getting veterans' benefits. She's suffering from post traumatic stress disorder. Definitely. In addition to this like body dysphoria metaphor that is her superpowers. Um, and she's just kind of like suffering alone in her apartment, detached and alienated from humanity and contemplating a suicide that she is physically incapable of committing. But what is her power? She can turn her body into different elements. Elements. So like the big thing with Metamorpho is like, you'll see a drawing of him a lot of times and his like hand will be a hammer because he like turned his fist into iron. Like she has the same powers as him and, and that's their whole deal. Uh, this is like a less... people don't know that she has this power? Because when she meets with her friend... No, I don't think they... the agency, it turns out they both work for, like, the CIA type of institution. She doesn't know that she has this, these superpowers. No, I don't think people knew. And it's like a superhero thing. She has, like, a secret identity. Um, this is weird, though, because I looked this up. I wanted to see what was happening with Metamorpho at the time. And at, at this time, Metamorpho is just like, uh, he's just being a superhero. He's like on the Justice League and he has a kid. Like, it's weird that her thing is so, so bleak and sad. Whereas like this other character that she's spun off from is just like having a grand old time hanging out with Animal Man and turning his hand into a hammer to punch, you know, Manga Khan. <laughs> So, Element Girl is retired from her um, yeah, she's job re- as a spy because she can't, at some point, control her powers anymore. She can't continually make 
a human face and she doesn't want to appear in as her true nature. So she becomes almost like a recluse. Yeah. And she's kind of really sad and depressed and she's looking to make a human connection and she sort of has this phone relationship with the someone in the agency who takes care of her um, disability. Yeah. So at some point, her friend from the agency calls her. This is the part, I mean, the whole part where she is like contemplating suicide and she has this sort of monologue where she's talking about her sad life. That is difficult. But I think the most upsetting to me and disturbing part of this whole issue is when she goes to meet her friend for lunch. Yeah. And her face literally falls off. Yeah, so that's like a thing that comes up a lot in this, is that when she makes herself look more human, what she's doing is using her powers to create an artificial shell on top of her, um, you know, regular metamorpho skin to appear more human. And she goes out to dinner with this friend from the agency who's pregnant now, and she's like, oh, I wanted to talk to you because I didn't really have anybody else I could talk to. And she's in this kind of fucked up situation where she's involved with a man who's married and he's promising to get a divorce. And then these a group of people with disabilities walk past the window and the friend says this really awful thing about them being freaks and having this anxiety about her kid being a, quote, freak. And then that upsets Urania and then her face falls off into a plate of spaghetti molinaise and she runs screaming from the restaurant and goes back to her apartment she tries to call mulligan the man that she talks to on the phone and he's been transferred to a different department and then she starts to seriously contemplate suicide which draws the attention of a passing death who comes in and has a conversation with her that is the rest of the issue yeah and i think that i mean here's death again who's supposed to theoretically be this terrible situation where you die being actually like a positive force. Yeah, maybe. Um, so she gives her this like pep talk that's basically like, you know, you're you got to acknowledge that your situation's crappy, but like part of making it better is that you got to take action yourself and you have to acknowledge your problems and whatnot, which is like a fine message, except for the fact that she literally says to a character who is a disability metaphor, a dysphoria metaphor, a PTSD metaphor, she says to that character the literal phrase you make your own hell which is bad that's a bad message like i get what you're trying to say but that was that i got to that part and i was like but i don't i mean you could also interpret it that as meaning she she by internalizing and not seeking help is making the situation worse. Oh, yeah, no. I think it works. By the end, it becomes this thing where it's like, yeah, you, you deserve to have help, but you, you at the end of the day, you kind of got to ask for help to get it. Right. Which is what she does. She goes out into the sun and she ha- she talks to Ra, literally, and Ra helps her pass into a new form that's not necessarily a death, but it's not the existence she had before. She basically becomes like glass and then she becomes dust and it's, the very end of the issue is like somebody calls and asks about her and that's like, oh, she's not here. I mean, I don't know where she is, but she's not here. But I think Implying that she like, she didn't die when Ra transformed her again, but she's just not 
living the way that she was before. Like, that all works and is good. Just, it's just the line, you make your own hell, was, like, a little a little rough. Yeah, but I think, I well, I also think, I mean, it's hard. There's a lot of things. She didn't ask for this transformation. No. And I guess, and it's also sort of implied by Death when she's talking about Ra, is that he's sort of himself out of touch with, modern society because he cre- keeps creating these metamorphae that she calls them because he wants to deal with this other god and th- and then yeah and then Def says well you know he, he's gone I took him 3,000 years ago like but Ra doesn't either acknowledge that or even care because he's condition- conditioned to keep making these things I, I that's part of why I wish Ra had shown up physically at the end of the issue i think a better way this could have gone is the idea that they decide to help each other that she decides to help raw cope with living in a world that he doesn't really understand anymore and raw helps her cope with living in a life she doesn't really understand anymore because of the things that have happened to her i like the ending but like i feel like we don't really acknowledge the fact that like raw done fucked up like yeah but i think it also i mean it's sort of lays the groundwork for that seed that's germinating in Neil Gaiman's mind about American gods. Sure. Because here you have a god that is not technically worshipped anymore, mm-hmm. but is still relevant in modern culture. He's still in pop culture and historically relevant or whatever. Yeah. And it, so I mean, he doesn't sun. have worshippers and he doesn't have a following, but he's still known. And that's the whole thing, like, with American gods, is if no one knows that you're a god, you don't exist anymore. That's why the old gods are so upset and want to become culturally relevant again. Here's a god that's culturally relevant, but really has no purpose. And is he, so he keeps creating these sort of mutations that he thinks that humans want to be. Or that he feels like need to exist in the world. But that's the other thing, like, this issue is very weird. It's clear that Gaiman read... Metamorpho, because she's an obscure character that you probably wouldn't know about unless you read that series. He also references another even more obscure character. When Death is talking to Urania, she mentions Algon, the Roman centurion, who's the ancient element man who appears in one issue and then dies. He's more important now, though. There's a comic going on right now where he's kind of an important figure uh, because Metamorpho is in that comic. But the thing with Metamorpho is the first issue... Ends with a little bit of a weird fake out. So he becomes the element man. And he can't turn back into a normal human being. And he saves his lady love, Sapphire Stag. And there's this moment where he's like, Ah, you can't love me in this ugly mug. And you think it's going to be, you know, reading it with your 2018 mind after having, at least for me, read a ton of comics about the thing and swamp thing and whatever. You think where that's going to go is that he's going to trudge off into the sunset to be alone and sad. And what actually happens is she goes, no, I'll always love you. And then they kiss and like, that's it. He's like, it's cool. He's not like a trap. Later writers would insert that into him, but Metamorpho isn't like a tragic, tormented figure. I mean, I guess he's supposed to stand in some kind of, if you know that, I guess he stands in contrast to Urania where he's like a guy who's taken this in stride and has a support system that helps him deal with the things he's been through and she doesn't. But it does feel kind of weird knowing how cool Metamorpho is with being a weird element man and how fucked up Urania is about it. 
Well, I also think, I mean, this is completely absurd. And, and I'm thinking it, and it really is. But it's almost like there's no superhero support system no. for her. And I think that's part of the problem. She's She is forcing herself into society that doesn't understand her. Yeah. And that is one of the reasons why she's unhappy. If she was in a situation where there were five other superheroes or mutants or whatever, she would have a support system that would... Help her adjust. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, this is pretty clearly, like, an exploration of the way we treat veterans. Like, we leave them, a lot of them are left out to dry without a support system to help them. And with nobody around who really understands what they've been through. She doesn't have anybody that gets her. And she tries to make the connection with her friend from the office. But she also hasn't been through the same thing as her. It's weird that she doesn't bring up Metamorpho. That she doesn't try to contact old Rex Mason who's literally on the Justice League right now, so he's like a public figure. Well, I had thought the same exact thing. And the reason, and I thought the reason why I felt that way mm-hmm. was because I was reading Forever Peace. Oh, Joe yeah. Holden, and I talked about how Forever War was about the experience of being in Vietnam, and Forever Peace was about the experience of being home. So I thought I was thinking that because I had read that story as I was reading this issue. Mm -hmm. But that makes a lot of sense. I also thought a lot about, and I'm surprised you didn't say this, and you did sort of nod to it very briefly. I thought a lot about Swamp Thing when I was reading this episode. And I don't know if it was because visually it made me think of a Swamp Swamp Thing issue Mm. or because we were talking about Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman has a connection to Alan Moore. But it really made me think about, like, how Swamp Thing was treated and how she is treated. Yeah. But to get back to the part about death being positive, I think even though she says, you know, look, you made your own hell and you have these problems and one of your solutions is you should kill yourself. I think she she's trying to help her mm-hmm. by giving her a solution that's going to make her happy. Sure. I mean, I mean, but is she's it the a, best solution? Maybe not. She's kind of just helping her by being a person that will listen to her, right? And I always, I was curious about who would be calling her if for all the time that she had been alone. I think it was just the same the Veterans Affairs Office calling her back after she had called them in such a state earlier. But it's kind of like it says a lot about the time too, because now. I mean, now we're sort of more sensitive to the sort of the effects of war. We're still not great about we're it as a society. Great. We're really not great about There's it. There's a lot of Uranium Blackwells out there still. Right. But I think we're sort of, and it maybe it calls to like point this, you know, this fact that we are not great at dealing with things like this. I mean, if she worked for an agency and she had dangerous jobs and she was a spy and she was also a superhero... And she had to not. She had to quit her job because she couldn't deal with that anymore. Their only response was to make sure she had a pension. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. That's what happens in real life. Like you go through all this stuff and it it breaks you. And at the end of the day, because of the kind of society we live in, we just, just if we are lucky if they just throw money at you. But I think like at this, if this was written today, there might have been a point where she, there was some kind of, you know, well, if it's written today. Former- Former superhero support group. Or... That's 100%. The whole time I was reading this, I was like, 
that was the idea. I was like, man, there really should be a comic about that. Like about a support group for either just for superheroes in general or for people that had these horrible mutations. Like that would be a great like single issue of the thing, which would be like him like doing something and throughout the day he's like calling the gargoyle to like check in on him and then he goes to his house and like has to bust down the door because he won't answer him. Or he's like that veteran at the veteran center that reaches out yeah. to new veterans. Yeah. I really like the idea of like the thing as like almost like AA sponsor. Yeah, exactly. He's that super intense guy that's really working the program and, you know. But But I I mean, that's what she needed. That's the whole point of this issue. She doesn't have a person like that who's been through the same thing as her and has developed the skills to cope with it and is willing to like teach her and guide her. She's all on her own. And like part of that is because, yeah, because she's unwilling to reach out. But also it's just because like we as a society, we don't like... We we try to ignore people like this and problems like that. We see it with her friend in the in the restaurant who's like, oh, they're freaks. Like she just dismisses and she never, these people. Her friend never asks her how she's doing. Yes, but I think that one of the interesting things about this issue that's brought up quite a bit is the fact that Morpheus does not appear at all. No, he's not in it. I think the reason why at first I thought is Ra supposed to be a stand-in for Morpheus, but oh, I don't think so. that. I think the reason why he doesn't appear is because he can't solve this problem. No. Only Dream can solve it. Or death. Or yes, I'm sorry, only death can solve it. Because Dream can't really do anything for her. She doesn't need to have a dream solution. She needs to have a death solution and he shows up. Yeah. I also Death solution sounds really ominous though. <laughs> well I'm sure. It also sounds like a pulp novel. It sounds like a um a Doc Savage story. The Death Solution. Yes, definitely. So. But, I mean, it's it's a hard sort of comment on social, you know, social situations and dealing with um, veterans, dealing with uh, sort of PTSD, dealing with that sort of alienation that some people feel. Yeah. But I don't understand... I mean, I don't, I don't know the backstory, but I feel like if I was Element Girl, I would embrace that power because that power it seems like it could be used for a lot of good things. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. I mean we see that with Metamorpho. he uses his power for for and good. I feel like but if like... she would have went out in society, yes, fifty people might have looked at her and said she was a freak, but one person might not have looked at her and said she was a freak. But think about it like this: take it back from the superhero thing. Imagine somebody who's suffering under mental illness or depression or whatever who has an incredible talent that they're not doing anything with it's the same thing like i yeah if i could do that i would go out and i would make money but it's like she can't she's she's suffering and she can't bring herself to leave her apartment no matter how much power she has i I think that's actually a thing that kind of works about this i i think the metaphor is pretty well constructed i mean it slips a bit here and there as any sort of like fantastical metaphor for a mundane problem will I do think that, like, I don't know. I, I'm of two minds about stuff like this. Like, this is a very classic Vertigo thing of, like, let's take this character and let's inject them with pathos and change their situation and tell some a more, you know, air quotes, mature story. And I think sometimes that works really well. And then sometimes it's just, like, a little too far. And I think this edges up to being too far. It's not quite... um Grant Morrison's Kid Eternity, where it turns out that his friendly spe- uh, spirit mentor is literally the devil, but it's 
a little close. It's it's not a it's not quite an anatomy lesson, but it's not quite a uh, you know kid eternity. Yeah, I mean it's it's like it, Metamorpho. Those comics are like fun adventure comics, and this is a very depressing story using one of those characters. It's kind of weird because it doesn't quite. I mean, other than having death in it, it doesn't really even fit. Even like the other three stories don't fit into the extended storyline but they're also very much of the style of a sandman story this is sort of a weird even for being like a weird interlude it doesn't really fit into sort of yeah this almost feels like it should have been like an issue of like legends of the dc universe or dc comics presents or like some an issue in an anthology series uh i don't think it's bad visually it's probably my least favorite in this collection but but I think it's sort of, I mean, for death, it sort of shows yeah, her, her sort of weird positive take on, like, I think this issue, on. this issue is more important than I think it seems initially. Because, well, I, I think it's nice to see death act, you know, as her own character, independent from Morpheus. All the times we've seen her beforehand in the series, she's been with him. You know, she's w- talking to him in the sound of her wings. She shows up with him in Men of Good Fortune. So it's nice to see her, like, what she's like on her own. But also, I think this is the first Death Solo series, and we end up getting two graphic novels that are just about her later on. I think it's also interesting when she, she like, the whole time that she's talking to Urania, she's playing with the mask, and at one point she almost puts on the mask. Yeah. So I thought that sort of, like, putting on, like, a human face was kind of like a nod to, like, the masks and the themes that are overarching in the Sandman, but I don't really think it connects thematically to the rest of the series. Yeah, the only really con- real connection it has is the um, just bringing up the idea that gods can die, which is like kind of sort of important later. Right. But I mean, Ra is a real asshole. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously got some problems, so. It's also funny because this does the reverse of a lot of... Um, like, the arc of a lot of DC comics was, like, the characters were introduced and the the way they got their powers was a little more uh, fantastical and a little more abstract. And then the characters are reinvented with more scientific explanations. And this does the kind of Alan Moore Swamp thing, thing where it, initially the Orb of Ra was just a meteorite. And then this takes it and makes it, like, a, a mytholo- explicitly a mythological thing. Right. Whereas, she- like originally in alan moore swamp thing it was like oh i got splashed with a serum and i turned into a swamp man or originally in swamp thing it was like that and then alan moore gets and he's like no actually you're an avatar of the collective consciousness of plants <laughs> i think you're right because she does it at death at one point says the the orb of Ra is not just in the tomb yeah it's and that's sun. how she knows to go outside and start to look uh yeah but i mean i'm interested and i'm excited to get back to the main story me too so I kind of I like this sort of interlude. It was kind of like the musical episode of a of a series, you know, like Buffy. They have that fun episode, and then now it's kind of like let's get back to the work of like figuring out what's going on with the endless and the kindly ones. And well, I hate to break it to you, but we're not going to get back to that immediately because we got another thing to read in between. But how much fun is this going to be? This oh yeah do you want to tell everyone what we're working on sure yeah we're breaking our rules again we're not reading two short stories for the next one we're reading one novella we are reading the hellbound heart by clive barker as a special spooky ooky halloween treat for ourselves and for you um 
Clive Barker when he was brought up earlier in this episode. But also, to bring it back to our first series, we're also going to be sort of turning it into like a Loeb episode where we're going to be talking about the novella and we are going to be watching the movie, Hellraiser. Yeah. I'm going to be watching this movie and I have to say, I figured it out. The novella came out in 1986. Sure. And then Hellraiser came out in 1987. I saw the movie for the first time in 1988 at the movies. And I have not watched that movie since then because for some reason it terrifies me. Yeah, I think listeners of the podcast will remember you saying that it's the scariest movie you can remember seeing and you haven't seen it since the first time you watched it. So I'm, it'll be interesting. I'm surprised that you're actually going to watch it. Well, I read the novella multiple times. I'm going to read it again. And I have taken some precautions to make sure that I'm not as terrified (laughs) as I'm watching Hellraiser, but I will do it. So when we talk about the novella on the next issue, on the next episode, or when we talk about it, we're also going to be talking about the movie. That, uh, I think that's going to be good. I'm excited for that. Um, do you have anything else? You got a recommendation or anything? Or are we, are we done here? I think we're done. I didn't create a uh, recommendation because I I thought it was going to be all Sandman, and it is. Yep. All right. Um, spoiler alert, stay tuned, and sweet dreams. We have such sights to show you. 